1: Julian Joseph says jazz is the musical equivalent of the human experience. He recalls the wonder and awe of listening to the jazz greats, not only perform an arrangement after hearing it just once, but of their ability to add finesse and flair in the process. A dedication to excellence an unrelenting curiosity and a steadfast desire to find and define our own voice in the world are just a few of the indications that jazz and our humanity require much of the same magic. And as someone devoted to the poetic potential of language, I am enlivened by Julian's assertion that the art of improvisation that jazz is so known for is the same art that animates our lives together. Whether playing as part of a jazz ensemble or finding our way through a difficult conversation, we do so knowing some ground rules and some boundaries with a freedom that enables surprise delight and transformation. So I accept Julian's invitation to understand the human experience as one of music making. Julian Joseph is acclaimed as one of the finest jazz musicians to emerge this side of the Atlantic. And his career has been characterized by many groundbreaking advances. He was the first black British jazz musician to host a series of concerts at London's Wigmore Hall and the first to headline a late night televised performance at the BBC proms. We explore how his musical tastes were formed in part by the arts and cultural programming that has long since left terrestrial television, and how the sophisticated tastes of his mother and mentors helped introduce him to the idea of musicians as magicians. He shares the methodology that undergirds the educative offering of the Julian Joseph Jazz Academy, which brings young people into a universe of music that spans centuries. And he waxes lyrical on the instruments and symphonies that enchant him, the artists and composers he recommends to inspire us to adventure, and his message to those who feel like they have music within them but aren't quite sure how to get it out. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm Busy Being Black with Julian Joseph. Julian Joseph, I'm really, really honored that you've accepted this invitation to join me and listeners on Busy Being Black. Thank you so much for being here.
2: It's my pleasure. It's great to speak to you, Josh.
1: Uh, To open all of my conversations on the show, I like to ask my guests the same question. How's your heart?
2: My heart. My heart is good. My heart is in balance. I love the things I love. It's beating and ticking okay. And yeah, I feel good. Take me back
1: to a young Julian. Can you recall the first time something within you stirred or responded to music? And if so, what was it that moved you? Uh,
2: Yeah. I mean, when I was young, really small, I just loved the sound of music anywhere. I can't actually remember a time when I wasn't stirred and fascinated and moved by music. But if I think back to when my dad used to rehearse his band in our basement. When I was about two or three years old and me and my brothers used to sit on the stairs and listen and watch. That's probably the first time that I can actively remember how music affected me. That's probably it. You've um, made me think about my childhood
1: actually saying that. I, I rem- The first time I can remember music kind of penetrating, like to becoming a conscious thing that I knew I was experiencing and enjoying was when I was living in the Azores, it was me, my dad, and my sister. And my dad always had a really wonderful, has always had a really wonderful taste in music. So at the time we were listening to I was obsessed with the bodyguards. We were listening to the bodyguard soundtrack. And I was dancing on the couch to Queen of the Night. And there was something about the do 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 that made me feel so hype. And I just remember feeling so empowered. and it wasn't by the lyrics because I didn't understand them at the time, but it was certainly by that by the by the music.
2: I I like what you said because you're sort of describing what I called coming into musical consciousness. I think I came into musical consciousness a little bit later when I started being, becoming quite discerning about what it is I like to listen to. And that was a joint effort between me and my two brothers, John and James, my, my older brother, John, and my younger brother, James. So yeah, I, I, the experience of music always hit me really deeply. Having the opportunity to grow up watching Oscar Peterson specials on television and sometimes seeing broadcasts from the Montreux or jazz festival or an assortment of jazz festivals that featured Duke Ellington or, you know, Stan Getz or or Count Basie and sometimes duets with these guys. And I I remember seeing an Oscar Peterson special where he did a duet with not only Count Basie, but he also did one with Ray Charles there's a brilliant interview I saw him do with Andre Previn. So a lot of that, you know, growing up in, at a time when music was really important and it actually, you could see supremely great artists on television as a matter of course. It was a very privileged time. And also in school, they would take us to see orchestral concerts and, you know, We'd spend maybe an afternoon learning and listening to Peter and the Wolf by Prokofiev. So I had a really sophisticated musical upbringing, but it wasn't unusual. It was an, an upbringing that everybody had access to. And, and it, was, it was something that really fueled me um, for the rest of my life because we had a music teacher who loved music first in my primary school We had a a woman called Joanna Mumby, and she had the the most talented kids, and she loved music. And then when she left, we had this incredible woman called Patricia Quamby, and she just instilled that sense of love for music. She was a vocalist. She had a beautiful voice, and, you know, the kids were just enthralled by the sound she could make when she sang. And her husband used to come in, and he was a wonderful jazz musician. He could play jazz on the piano, and in fact, he was so it was so palpable how good he was to kids you know of five, six, seven years old that if Mr. Cornby ever wanted the kids to be quiet, if we were getting rowdy, she'd be like, "Watch yourselves, keep quiet because Mr. Cornby won't play, everyone might, everyone will be quiet so i you know I had that real privilege growing up. Around great music from my dad. My mum was really sophisticated in her musical tastes and bought a piano for my brothers and I. And we came home from from school and said, Mom, there's a piano in the in, in the front room. She goes, Yep, and you're all gonna learn. And so you know, music impacted really deeply and heavily in a multitude of ways in many different layers, from influences, from encouragement, from school, from just the general thinking about the importance of music and art.
1: Yeah, you touched on something I think that's super important, and that's come up for me now a couple of times, is, is about public education, as in, you know, watching broadcasts of of these amazing musicians. I only recently learned about the late art critic John Berger, who had who was you know this I'm, I I move around in a lot of academic texts and spaces and so I was familiar with the male gaze but I didn't know that John Berger the art critic coined it in the 1970s as part of this series he did on the BBC I was like this is crazy and that he had this kind of really long it's available on YouTube for those who want to see it but this this kind of multi-episode program just about new ways of looking at art and challenging kind of dominant ways of understanding what an artist's role is in the world and I thought, gosh, that's so remarkable like that we that there was a time when an arts and cultural education was something that public broadcasters took quite seriously and it, it has a huge impact. it's amazing it, it
2: was it, it was a, a really rich time where music was really really important and yeah I, I do feel very privileged about that but I also feel privileged that this sensibility that attracted me to jazz existed in my heart and in, in my brother's heart, and that that was important to my mum, you know, in particular, and got encouragement for that, you know? And so what was it about jazz that, of all the,
1: you know, you're learning instruments yeah. or you're playing the piano, you said in an interview that you were a piano hog,
2: you were yeah, hungry yeah. from, from your brothers. <laughs> my poor brothers. <laughs> And so what was it about jazz in particular? I just loved the richness of it. I loved the magic of it. If you think of music like, because it's a, a word very close to a magician, a musician. And whenever I saw someone like Duke Ellington or Errol Garner or Oscar Peterson play, I just thought, well, these are magical human beings who are able to not only absorb a piece of music understand it, know it, they can replay it, but then also take it to another level of where they turn the music into their own. I thought, how does anybody do that? First of all, learning the music, how do you, how do you learn the music so quickly that you can turn it around and play it as your own? So I was just fascinated about that. And so, I mean, in an intellectual level, but I just loved the sound of it. I loved the sound of the big bass. I loved the rhythm of it and just the way the people played together. It had this warmth and it had this beauty to it. And, you know, not that I was thinking in terms like this, but it just felt like my culture. It felt like it comes from my people. And something on a deeper level just connected to it. Not that that's only what it's about because i know plenty of people who aren't black who love jazz just as much as i do you know and have that connection but i just love that it made me feel good about myself as a black person as well because every person who plays jazz is is a is a genius you know herbie hancock who, who's smarter than that mccoy tyner you know miles davis charlie parker what, what's better than that? Who who achieves greater than that? Duke Ellington, Count Basie. Oh, my goodness. You know, Art Tatum. You know, these guys set whole new ways of thinking, whole new ways of expressing music, whole new ways of interpreting. It's, you know, it's just it just blew my mind. And I don't know why I realized that or why that that had such an impact. And I just think that so there is something about music and all of art, all of the artistic pursuits that goes beyond the mind and goes beyond, you know, verbal reasoning. And it just informs another part of of intelligence that's linked with the soul. I just got goosebumps.
1: Okay, so just yesterday we're <laughs> going off-piste, but it's not off-piste, actually, it's totally related to this. So listeners will have heard me talking about this all year, but I've been very enchanted recently by biological philosophy. And so there's this incredible biological philosopher called Andreas Weber, who is really urging us and calling us to understand our evolution and our purpose as being much more than the kind of limiting ideas of the Darwinistic causal mechanistic thrust. He's putting forward what he calls an erotic ecology. So even down to our smallest, most individual cells. Each one is animated by an erotic thrust. They want to touch and be transformed. And just yesterday, I was reading something by Sophie Strand, who's a writer kind of in the same space. And she was saying that we have forgotten and and kind of been divorced from remembering and knowing that all of the senses are ultimately touch, It's waves touching each other, then touching cells and sending electrical impulses. And so there's something about this kind of resonance of the music that is beyond the kind of capital R reason, but is actually related to feeling, right? You feel more connected, perhaps more human. I
2: I totally agree with that. I, I, I get a physical reaction when I listen to music. When I experience music, it's, it is physical for me, you know. And yeah, I mean, I can talk, you know, in the terms that a lot of people are used to, where it's spiritual, it's got this depth, but it does, I do respond to it physically. I, I definitely relate to that. And, and I think music operates on many dimensions, and we're lucky if we can experience one, um, let alone the many. You know, and and I feel that I'm I like to think that I'm I'm plugged into the many, you know. So there's this ongoing discourse
1: and I guess dialogue around the role of the black artist, right, in society. You've got questions about whether a black artist, a black musician is making black music for black people, or whether black art and the black artist is always only responding to you know, anti-Blackness and kind of the, the social ills of our time. But I do think it comes down to what one thinks and believes their duty is as an artist. And so, do you feel called in some way to, to do
2: something through your music? What is your purpose as an artist? I think my purpose as an artist is to interpret what I feel about the world. And in the last 10, 15 years, I started and have been writing operas. I've written four, and those I've found a way to tell as universal stories with Black people in the lead. Because I think all stories are for all people, but the all people stories we hear often don't put black people front and center so i've seen it as an opportunity for me to do that to tell the story for all people with black people front and center and you know and then also in analyzing the way my favorite composers and my favorite musicians have uh, manifested their art say for example duke Ellington or john coltrane they have been quite outspoken in their art about the way they view their own people. But it's not like they're beating anyone over the head about it. They're just emanating a truth, you know, of where we come from, who we are as a society and what the sound of that is. You know, so I relate. I do relate very heavily to that. Same way, you know, Herbie Hancock has always been one of my favorite artists. And if you think of his album, The Prisoner from 68, uh, that's very much, you know, it's got a piece called I Have a Dream. It's all all about, you know, expressing civil rights. But Herbie's never been a person who beats anyone over the head about civil rights. It's all in there. And and it's almost an effortless manifestation, emanation from a sophisticated view of how music is put together. And it can be really sophisticated, really complex, really esoteric, really simple, really earthy, really heavenly. And so I just like to fit my art, knowing that I have this great canvas in which to operate that isn't dictated by my need to tell people only about my culture. But I do like to relate my culture and where I'm coming from and how I view the world with everybody. So everybody can see it and everyone can absorb it and feel it.
1: Yes, <laughs> I love that.
2: <laughs> I really am vibing with that. And um, I think you've also
1: kind of brought into relief another aspect. You know, James Baldwin said that it was his duty to bear witness, right? And that he was looking and observing and you know <laughs> showing us back to ourselves. But, we'll, but what we learn from James Baldwin, I think, in particular, is that, you know, let me say it another way. So often, when people are talking about quote unquote black art and they're non black people, they think that art, therefore, doesn't apply to them, right? When actually, as you've so elegantly said, that this is a story that just centers the experiences of my people, it does not mean that that doesn't have a universal impact. You know, it's the same with Busy Being Black. We're talking about belonging, enchantment, love. You know, these are universal themes. But when you put someone else as the focus of kind of explaining those dreams, it, it, it offers a beautiful contour and texture, I think, to, to these stories that we don't often get
2: to hear. And it's so needed. It's so needed. You know, you, everything leans this way. And, you know, and we are twisted doing that. Sometimes you need to just see it from like that, you know? I had
1: a really wonderful conversation earlier this year with theater maker Mojisola Adebayo, and she was trained in theater for social change by the late Augusto Boal. He's credited as the originator of theater of the oppressed. And Mojisola says education and performance are most impactful when they're understood as relationships. Quote, great education is all about a relationship, a dialogue an interaction, not just a dumping ground for knowledge and, quote, theater is not just relationships with people on stage, but a relationship with one's audience. And so I wonder how might you talk about how education and performance meet
2: at the Julian Joseph Jazz Academy? Well, that's a that's a very insightful question, because I had the privilege, when I wrote my second opera, which is a children's opera called Shadow Ball, based on the early baseball of the black community, because they used to play, you probably know about this, but what, what used to happen in the early days of baseball in the black community is they used to play a, a pre-game without a ball. And it was such a convincing game that people actually thought there was a ball and it was I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, and it was called shadow ball and you know so this is what players like Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson they came up playing this this game. So when I I did this opera and it was you learned about the history of the game. You learned numerology and counting and and uh, mathematics through understanding how these how it's scored and also you learned about the culture around it that they used to often meet for games on a sunday when people had their days off or they had an afternoon off and they'd meet on a sunday afternoon it also was very linked to jazz because people like cab callaway were really good baseball players and um the way that I wrote the opera included people like Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, um, Duke Ellington, and Cab, of course. And so you got to learn about jazz and you got to learn about music. And I thought this was um, an incredible experience for me, marrying the art with education on so many different levels. I mean, there's way more one could talk about. There is an education pack for anyone who's interested about in that, that that lists all of the things that it's linked to and how we used to go into schools and learn about these things. And so it ended up being quite a wonderful partnership with um, HMDT Music that, that encouraged me and commissioned me to write this opera. And so when it came a, a particular time in our relationship, Adam Eisenberg and um, Tertia Sefton green who both run um, HMDT Music, they said to me, Julian, when we've spoken before, were you serious about starting a music academy, a jazz academy? And I said, yes, you know, taking a deep breath at the same time, because, you know, understand the responsibility. And then that's where it emanated and started to put together some concepts about trying to teach the music and also offer something perhaps, that wasn't typical of education, particularly for jazz in this country, and that's learning by ear, making it repertoire-based and going through the history of jazz from early jazz like Jelly Roll Morton to Louis Armstrong and um, Fats Waller into Charlie Parker, Charles Mingus, Miles Davis, Dizzy Gillespie, further on to Ornette Coleman, uh, Eric Dolphy, John Coltrane, Wayne Shorter, Joe Henderson, Herbie Hancock, you know, the cats, Chick Corea, Keith Jarrett, and so on and so forth, right up until, you know, people like the Weather Report and, and further on to, you know, the Marsalises and Brad Meldow and so on and so forth. So this is how I put the concept together. And came up with a, a way of trying to give every musician who comes to me some semblance of methodology so that because jazz is such a big spirit, it's such a big, sometimes undefinable pursuit, like saying, "How do you become a human being?" You know, It's such an open question. How do I play jazz?" You know is like, "How do I be a human being?" What what does it mean to to be a human being? What does it mean to play jazz? What does it mean, you know, to develop? So try to put some processes, you know, in play to help young people not only develop their skills as musicians, but, you know, as thinkers with a relationship to history um, and to humanity.
1: Busy Being Black returns in just a moment. I'm Josh Rivers, and you're listening to Busy Being Black. I'm in conversation with Julian Joseph. In 2021, Julian was named a Fellow of the Ivers Academy, which recognizes excellence and impact in the art and craft of music creation. It's the highest honor the Academy bestows, and Julian joins a very small group of fellows, including Joan Armor Trading, Elton John, and Annie Lennox. This November, Julian plays Gershwin with the London Philharmonic Orchestra and subscribers to Busy BM Black's newsletter, Field Notes, will find an exclusive discount code for tickets in their inbox. It's a very interesting parallel you draw between what does it mean to be human and what does it mean to play jazz? Where do they overlap? What do you need
2: to do both well? I often say that jazz is like... Like being a human in musical terms, because when you walk into the world of jazz, you're, you can pick up things from your, the people around you, your parents, if you will, your cousins, your aunties. And it's the same thing, you know, in life. Your influences come from those around you, your environment. How you learn is how you're directed and where does your accent come from where does your signature all of these things start to manifest so the total pursuit of being a human being like having some semblance of direction ambition how do i get better um all of these things are relatable to learning um jazz because in jazz you know you have a basic set of skills which is for example, in, in life, what's your ABC? What are your, how do you communicate? How do you then turn that into something that goes deeper? And how do you make it more sophisticated or more communicative? And it's the same in, in jazz. You have influences and you learn maybe well, as a pianist, you might start off with the sound of, say, Horace Silver. And then you're like, yeah, I'm really getting into some Horace. And then you learn all of Horace's music. And then you think, yeah, it's time for me to start checking some some Herbie Hancock's so and you work on some Herbie. And then you think, well, there's some bits missing. I need some, I need some Wynton Kelly. Let me put some Wynton in there. Let me see what horn players do. What does Freddie Hubbard do? What does Miles do? And you start absorbing those. And then it starts to manifest and create in you its own interpretation, its own vocabulary, its own semblance of communication. As you're talking about these these
1: influences and trying things on, it is what we do, right? I'm thinking of just how, just this year, I've been so influenced by this kind of biological philosophy, ecological space and how I'm pulling in what I'm learning into these conversations and finding new ways to add flair and enchantment and new ways of looking at the world. And that that's 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 becoming a, a shift in my very being, in my very presentation. And so I love that this 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 analogy between being human and being a jazz musician.
2: It's it's just I just find it the most, because often people say, oh, you know, I really wish I could improvise. And I'm like, well, you do improvise every day just by speaking. When you speak, you don't have a script in front of you telling you exactly what to say. And when you're speaking with someone, you're improvising together. And that's what we do as jazz musicians. It's exactly the same. You know, we we have, you know, borders and and boundaries, which we can operate within, that sometimes we move outside of, similar to how you're conducting this interview. You know, we're we're actually making music on a song that you've prepared. So you've given me all the chord changes, and then we're just sometimes reharmonizing it. Sometimes we're just playing it as as the tune goes, you know. But always we're improvising, but we're on the same page. So
1: for someone like me, who's always found improvisational jazz a bit hard to follow, I sh- I'm, I'm, I'm listening to a conversation, basically, between the instruments versus uh, an entire piece.
2: Well, I think it, it operates in both ways. Because if, if you listen to early jazz, and you listen to somebody like Jelly Roll Morton, or you listen to Louis Armstrong, or Sidney Bechet, it's a mixture of actually playing the melody you'll hear things going around the melody but everything is melodically based and there's you know they'll they'll play something you know like tiger rag or something and you'll get the melody you know <laughs> Bop so, bop you know, there are these cells of things. You know how it goes, bop 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 it. bop 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 put some arpeggiation here, some melodies there. But it's all melody, and, and it's all stuff you can follow. I think as it starts to change, and you can't hear where the melody is or what they're doing, you're like, well, what are they doing now? What is, what is that? Often, the way jazz is presented, it's often in a very esoteric way. So you're supposed to understand this, this music that actually has turned into something that is so peculiarly fashioned for people who already listen to jazz that you're like, well, where am I? Where can I get my place in this music? And that is not all of jazz. Jazz is more the other way, you know, where there is this, this wonderful set of, of sounds that you can recognize coming in and out, you know, section by section, and then it changes, you know, often like a pop song. I think even as the composition gets more sophisticated and you listen to someone like Duke Ellington, you can hear that, you know, the first part is very melodically based. You know, the next part is very melodically based and a development from the first part. The third part may contain some improvisation, but it also contains something that drives the melody forward. But then then often the improvisation is a colour around what the purpose of the melody is so it's not just a sort of free-for-all thing that you just have to think well i just got to make head or tail of it you know if you imagine um school kids in a playground um when you run into that playground and you start playing as a child you're having the best time so often it's not something that if you observe it you may pick up the joy of that going on um, and but you're not necessarily immersed in it because you're not there playing you know so we're often thrown into that situation of, of watching kids play and you think well yeah it's great for them you know <laughs> but but uh, am i supposed to to be entertained by this you know if your thing is you want to, an experience you know so going into a jazz club say in the 1940s and 50s and listening to Charlie Parker or Thelonious Monk or or Charles Mingus, that's a completely different kind of experience because they're going to offer you major hooks, major experiences that you can latch onto and that uplift you, that take you to certain places in your imagination, in just the way you feel. That's a entirely different experience. That's a, a sophisticated experience. And so, you know, we're, we're bombarded with this word jazz and a plethora of different interpretations all at the same time. And you're supposed to think, well, you know, what is jazz? What am I supposed to e- extract from it? It's a shame in a sense, because. All music has its attractiveness and it has its drawing points that don't need an explanation. But I think if you want to get into jazz, the experience is quite a difficult undertaking today because the, the music you're presented with more often than not is a popular music. And then the popular sides of jazz that you get, if you listening to Sinatra or Ella Fitzgerald or Billie Holiday, you're like, yeah, I, I I don't like jazz, but I like that, you know, that's jazz, right? So you're just like, okay. And then it just becomes confusing. You're like, well, what is jazz? You know, what actually is it? I'm thinking of like classical music.
1: I've been, <laughs> um, I like art that provokes, right? Like I, I'm always searching for something that kind of guts me and like leaves me bereft. I need to, you know, I need to be like shaken. And so Apple Music, this is not an ad, Apple Music have released like a new app, like a classical app. And they have these kind of incredible playlists and you can listen to avant-garde classical music. And it's so, it's so exciting to me to, to kind of be introduced to these new ways of listening, but I can name really specifically what it is about classical music, even if it's not the instrument. I've just been listening to the planets on repeat by yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Venus is just like, Oh, my God, I feel so (laughs) sensuous. And I don't know what those instruments are that are doing that. But I just know that I can name that when I listen to this classical piece of classical music, I feel this. And I think it's harder with jazz for me to, to name for me to name that specifically.
2: I think classical music has spent a good amount of time sort of presenting itself to try and be palpable and palatable to the audiences and not just exist in one area where they only play Tchaikovsky and Mozart, you know? So, but I always think that jazz, you know, if you, all you have to do is take a few names, like, you know, if you want, if you want music that provokes Charles Mingus, Ornette Coleman, you know, Don Cherry, Eric Dolphy. All of that stuff is going to provoke you. It's going to twist your insides out. And it's going to be like, oh, okay, then. Anthony Braxton, Art Ensemble of Chicago. You know, that's like the avant garde, certain avant garde isms, you know, because nobody does avant garde better than jazz, you know? So it's all in there. And it just, I, you know, I think if things are artist led because the artists are the composers, the players, the great players are the figureheads. And in classical music, the composers are, are king, you know, are, are at the top of the food chain. Um, and, and in jazz, it's the, the players, you know, and the people who put the music together because it, they're often player composers. Um, even if they're primarily composers. Um, so it's artists. You have to check out artists. And if you know you like Ornette Coleman, there's a whole plethora of people you can align with him that can get you what you want from there. If you like Charlie Parker, same thing. If you like Miles Davis, same thing. If you like the fusion aspect of jazz, say from the 70s, you know, there's a whole bunch of people you can put together there so it's just about trying not to get drawn into what becomes confusion you're like there's so many things i don't know where to start you start with something you like
1: yeah i appreciate these prompts as well because that's what you're talking about earlier there's this big space this big community and really rich history and you know of course i've listened to the greats but what else is jazz? I think that's the that's the curiosity I have, so I really appreciate these prompts. Speaking of classical, you're performing with London Philharmonic Orchestra on the 22nd of November. I going to tell you a really quick story. So I went to my first classical concert just a month ago. I was invited to Classical Pride, and so it was Europe's first classic classical concert performing or orchestra only performing works by queer composers. composers. Or composers who were thought to be queer. I went with a friend who, this is his wheelhouse, and this sound kept coming from the left-hand side of the stage, like this wall of sound. I had to stifle a moan. (laughs) I just, I was so pleased by the sound. And so I, you know, turned to my friend, I was like, what is that sound? What is it? And he's like, ah, you're feeling the cellos. And you can see me smiling, like I was like I love cellos, like I I, ha- I didn't know that I loved cellos, and that was really exciting to me. What instrument besides the piano does that for you? That you hear and you just you feel pleasure.
2: You know, it can come from any instrument because you know I love the bass clarinet, I love the oboe, I love cellos, I love you know all the strings. Um. So. It's often not going to be one instrument unless they're given a particular role. Like there's, um, there's a melody in the second movement of Prokofiev's fourth symphony. And it emerges after you hear these beautiful chords and then the, then the string, you know, the, the woodwind played these, these, this beautiful backing, and then the strings rise up and just lift your spirit And then out of it emerges this great melody on the flute, but then it gets passed around the orchestra in the way that Prokofiev does. So often it might be something, you know, that where there's a a carpet of warmth and harmony that could either be in the woodwinds or can be in the brass or can be in the strings or a combination of these things. I think when you're, you know, a composer and also as music concentrated as I have been for so long, I have such love and respect for so many instruments, probably all of them, to be honest. So that's a bit of a, that's a bit of a trap for me. I can't, I couldn't just put my finger on one, one instrument that just does that for me. But in particular moments, like in the Prokofiev symphony. You know, certain instruments will stand out.
1: So, as a jazz pianist and a composer, what's the difference playing within a jazz ensemble and playing with an orchestra? Like, how does it
2: feel different? Well, I think, <laughs> I think in jazz, when you offer yourself so much freedom, you know, and your choices are and your responsibilities are to one make melodic information sing and connect and communicate and sometimes part of that job is by altering it you know because of the way you feel. Often in a classical situation many of the notes that you're going to play are exact you know you have to play those notes in that order with no deviation. Fortunately I'm playing Rhapsody in blue and I can play it just exactly as George Gershwin wrote it but I can add a few extra flurries, so I can break away from the, the the page and you know, impart some of the things that I feel he might have done or that he may have wanted me to do, and then move back to the script, so to speak. So I can come off script and go back on it. So in so doing, it gives me a, a chance to both experience the music you know, as a classical musician might, and also imbue it with the experience that I have as a jazz musician. I think that's what's so beautiful about music, you know,
1: much like growing up for you, that this kind of serendipitous knocking into music um, changed you and transformed you and, and nudged you to where you are. And I think this that's why i feel so lucky to have gone to classical pride was it wasn't only this I had this beautiful experience which was a first time for me with someone i really care about but that that cello and i can still feel that that wave of sound moving through me and then it led to you and to all these other really beautiful things so uh, that serendipity of music is really special i think
2: yeah it's it's a, it's a beautiful thing to grow up and to experience music in a way where you don't have to be limited to what the uniform of the style of music is you're supposed to be listening to, you know, and to be dictated by social constructs that say, well, this is the music, surely, that you should be listening to and that the richness and the treasure of music as a full and open experience is is open to you in every single way. A friend of mine asked me what, what music, Julian, do you like what era do you like of music? And I said, well, for me, you know, I love jazz. So I love love 100 years of that era of music, which is how long it existed. And then I love, you know, in, in terms of looking at classical music, I love, if I'm talking about an era, I'm not I'm talking about Haydn to Mozart, to Beethoven to Schubert I'm from the beginning to the end of that era until then you come into you know the romant- romantic era and and then I love all of that so you know I, I it's the, the the things that I love about music you know sweet for what to most people might seem a long time you know in 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 waves of a hundred years or so so <laughs> You know, it's not a limited experience for me. It's something that that is big and rich and, you know, never stops giving, never stops feeding, you know, my imagination and the pleasure centers of my my mind and my heart.
1: Yeah, I also hear in there, I'm putting words in the wrong, but I hear in there an invitation to adventure and to follow what you hear and what you feel as a result of, of what you hear. To close our conversation, what would you say to a queer Black person listening to this conversation who feels music inside of them and would like to share it
2: with the world? If you have some training and you have a way to get it out, find a way to get it out by finding like-minded people and getting together with them. If you don't and you want to, then find somewhere where you can learn. You can start with a teacher, you know, it could be a community of listeners and see what it leads to, talk to people, get involved and just try and learn some things, find an instrument that, that you might be able to experiment with. It could be electronic, you know, it could be a woodwind, it could be a string, it could be a piano. But it's, you know, if it's a, a journey and an adventure you're looking for, then, you know, take that first step. Take that first step into adventure and explore and find people who can help you realize your dreams. Julian, thank you so much for being here for this really wonderful conversation. Such a pleasure, Josh. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Julian Joseph has made a major contribution to Britain's cultural landscape and heritage and is celebrated for his commitment to inspiring the musicians of the future. You'll find more information about Julian in the show notes. And if you'd like that discount code for tickets to see Julian play Gershwin with the London Philharmonic Orchestra, you should sign up for Field Notes. Busy Being Black is an exploration and expression of queer liveliness. And my guests are those who have learned to live, love and thrive at the intersection of their identities your support of the show means the world please leave a rating and a review and share these conversations far and wide as we continue to work towards futures worthy of us all my hope is that as many of you as possible understand busy being black as a soft tender and intellectually rigorous place for you all to land thank you to my friend lazarus lynch for creating the ancestral and enlivening busy being black theme music
3: Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2.